listening to Strange New England. I'm your host, Tom Burby. The Last Flights. July 11th, 1944. The day of Maine's worst air disaster. 10,000 warplanes flew from or over Maine during World War II, and the vast majority of those planes made it safely to their destinations. But it certainly wasn't unheard of for one of the thousands of planes in the sky to fall to Earth before they crossed the ocean for the war. Over the course of the conflict, a total of 48 aircraft crashed in our state, accounting for a total of 143 deaths. But there was a single day where two bombers crashed within four hours of each other in our state, claiming the lives of 27 people. This day remains the worst day for aviation in the state's history. Aircraft number one, July 11th, 1944. The time is just after midnight. An 8th Air Force B-17G Flying Fortress heavy bomber takes off with a 10-man crew from Kearney, Nebraska, headed for Dow Army Airfield in Bangor, Maine, and then to Gander, Newfoundland, en route to a base in the English Midlands one of 17 in a group. Apparently, that day, everything went according to plan, until. Well, it will never be known exactly what happened to cause that plane to crash into Deer Mountain in Maine. All we can do is speculate, based upon the experience of the other bombers that took off that same day. We have no way of knowing, for instance, what happened to the aircraft to cause the events that happened. We do know, however, that the weather over the Appalachians was foul and the crew had been warned of it. They must have flown high enough to try to avoid most of the turbulence that they would encounter over the Appalachian Mountains. And we can imagine that they were tossed and buffeted about with wind, thunder, rain, and hail, all part of a mix. Anyone who has experienced turbulence knows the feeling of being thrown about like a BB in a can. These planes were not built for comfort. They were rugged, and the B-17G bomber had a reputation for being able to make it through the worst combat and still make it home. The plane made it through. Other planes from the group reported terrible conditions, so we can safely assume that Cast and his crew must have also experienced a similar set of events. We do know that something happened to the radio. We do know that the radio operator made his last scheduled contact with ground operators at around 9.30 a.m. and that this was something he did regularly every half hour to help maintain the position of the aircraft. But at around 10 a.m., when the radio operator was scheduled to make radio contact with ground to help him maintain his fix, he must have found that he couldn't raise anyone because no one on the ground heard them. He may also have found that he couldn't receive any fixed signals or commercial radio stations. Perhaps they checked the radio equipment and found some smashed tubes, a common occurrence after encountering such turbulence. 
Perhaps they even replaced those broken tubes in an attempt to make contact and determine their position. But we know they never made contact with the ground again. But all was not lost. There were other ways of finding their way. It is possible that the rough weather and turbulence caused the gyroscopic magnetic compass to malfunction, giving false readings. There was also something called a radio compass that was quite likely not working either. Cast and his navigators, Second Lieutenant William Hudgens Jr., had very few tools to help them find their way. It might have seemed pretty hopeless, but for their last resort, for determining their position. Instead, he had to rely largely upon his knowledge of dead reckoning, using radio beacons and radio fixes from airfields along the way. And if that failed, the pilot might be able to use a sextant and navigate using the positions of celestial objects and bodies in the sky, if, of course, they could see them. But it appears that Cast was unable to use either navigation system to help him find his way. It had come down to his last option, any pilot's last option. He would have to rely upon his eyesight alone. This combination of bad weather and loss of radio contact probably caused Lieutenant Cast to fly way off course. And after 12 hours airborne, it must have become painfully clear to him that he was running low on fuel. Using only his vision to guide him, to see the world below, he would have to fly below the cloud bank to look for anything that could help him determine a course. Anything that looked familiar. One can imagine all of the members of this crew straining at their respective windows to see something, anything, that could inform them of their position. They would have to rely on the aircraft's intercom to communicate with the roar of four 1,200 horsepower engines whining loud and reverberating throughout the plane. We know that they were still airborne at 1.30 in the afternoon and that their fuel must have been dangerously low. The B-17G burns 50 gallons of fuel per hour per engine and had the capacity of 1,700 gallons, most of which was already gone. They must have checked their charts and understood eventually that they had been circling the town of Rangeley in Maine. They must have been so relieved to know that close by was an airstrip, a runway, a safe landing. Flying in a long circle for more than an hour they must have recognized where they were because Cast finally steered his plane toward Rangeley's tiny airstrip. But there was still a final problem. Because they had been flying low enough to look at the terrain, they needed to gain altitude to come up onto their approach. But the B-17G has a relatively poor rate of climb, only 900 feet per minute. To get the plane up to where it rightfully belonged to be safe would take minutes. They never made it to the runway. Details from the crash site investigation showed that they must have been flying extremely low because as Lieutenant Cass turned to bank, the B-17's wingtip caught on a treetop, causing the plane to twist and corkscrew into the ground 
at full speed. The wreck created a swath in the forest 200 feet wide for a distance of over 800 feet before it finally stopped. With so little fuel left in the tanks, there was no fireball or great explosion, just a sudden crashing sound and the snapping of trees and timber, followed by a long and hollow silence. No one survived. All were under the age of 27 years old. The wreck was discovered three days later after an exhaustive search. The few crew remains taken to Bangor and the remains of the plane were left to sit in the middle of the North Woods, perhaps to be seen by a hunter now and again as the years went by. Eventually, a logging company came upon the wreckage and buried it. Still later, it seems, another storm uprooted some of the trees that had grown over the wreck, exposing it again to the elements and inspiring a few people to erect a stone to the memory of the fallen airman. The remains of the B-17 still lie beneath the forest, and a stone marker is all that remains to mark the spot where these brave men met their end on a blustery July day in Maine. But the worst wasn't over. Aircraft number two. A twin-engine A-26 Invader attack bomber from Barksdale Field in Louisiana took off from Bradley Field in Connecticut after refueling. It was being piloted by a Mainer, 2nd Lieutenant Philip Fee Russell, a flight instructor from South Portland. This journey was a kind of gift to Russell from the Army. They called it a long-distance training mission so he could take a ride to his home state for a well-deserved break and visit home. And he was almost there, with only 170 miles between him and his wife and his daughter. Fee Russell was a flight instructor. He knew how to pilot an airplane. And he wasn't a rookie by any measure. He had made it through much of the same weather that Cast and his crew had encountered, and he had been lucky enough to stay on course. His wife and baby daughter were on the base, waiting in the observation tower, ready to greet him as he exited the plane. It would be a joyous reunion. The fog was so thick that afternoon, however, that the base commander had actually closed the runway but because Russell was close, they were going to allow him to land. At 4.35 p.m., his voice came over the radio, requesting landing instructions. He was on time to land in Portland, but unfortunately, time was running out. The people in the observation tower reported seeing his invader come out of the fog at only 200 feet. What happened next happened so quickly. Was that smoke coming from his starboard engine or just a trick of the light in the fog? The tower immediately instructed Russell to climb to 1,500 feet, but they didn't get a chance to finish their instructions to head to another field in New Hampshire. For a reason we will never be able to ascertain truly, Russell never touched down on Portland's runway. 
though he flew directly over it at high speed and very low altitude. As he was circling, his wingtip caught the ground, and the invader cartwheeled, plowing into the earth. He met his end when the plane collided with Westbrook's Red Bank trailer camp, full of workers who were building Liberty ships at the New England Shipbuilding Corporation's facility. A fireball with 100-foot flames lit up the sky as the A-26 invader made impact and created an impact crater. Nineteen people died in that trailer park, including Russell and his flight engineer, Wallace Mifflin. In the Portland area, this incident would be remembered as the Long Creek disaster. A small memorial to the victims of the crash has recently been erected. On that fateful day, 27 people lost their lives due to a strange combination of weather, confusion, and reasons we will never determine. July 11, 1944, marks Maine's worst day in aviation history. Today, Maine remains a place where the sky seems filled with aircraft, either coming from or going to Canada or Europe, planes whose contrails fill the sky with a kind of white lace reminder that up there, too high to hear, thousands of people fly over us on their way to somewhere beyond. But every now and then, often on a quiet night, late in the evening, you might find yourself drawn to the window to see if you can glimpse whatever it is that's making that sound. It's a kind of low, loud whine in the distance, a deep-throated hum that seems louder and lower than it should be, just above your head, growing in intensity as it passes over and then diminishes into the darkness, continuing to wherever on its lonely journey. I've heard that sound more than once in my life, and I know it might simply be a lovingly maintained museum piece on its way to an air show somewhere, but there's a part of me that wonders if that sound of roaring engines might also be a memory, an echo from a time when thousands of planes filled with tens of thousands of young men flew overhead toward their own uncertain futures. You've been listening to Strange New England. Check out our website at www.strangenewengland.com for many more stories of the strange and macabre.